Hello, I'm Fifi Peters. I want to welcome you to the Journey to One Billion podcast series. We're speaking to MasterCard experts and business leaders across the Middle East and Africa and around the world who are working together to build a more inclusive and sustainable digital economy that works for everyone, everywhere. MasterCard has a commitment to financially include 1 billion people into the digital economy by 2025. This is the journey to 1 billion. In this podcast, we focus on a topic very dear to my heart, unlocking the power of the female economy and empowering women entrepreneurs. I'm joined by two inspirational women, Anne Cairns, Executive Vice Chair at MasterCard, and Sarah Beidoum, Founder and Creative Director of Lebanese fashion house and social enterprise, Sarah's Bag. Sarah was inspired to start a business that would provide employment opportunities for vulnerable women in her community and give them an opportunity to seek a better life. And joining this episode to discuss the benefits of unlocking the female economy is Anne Kentz. Anne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Fifi. It's a real pleasure to be here talking about this subject, which is very dear to my heart. And very dear to mine as well. And I have been reading a lot of research reports around the COVID-19 pandemic, and it does seem that there's a consensus view that it's been a lot harder on women and female-led businesses. What is your opinion? I think that's absolutely right. Um, certainly, there has been a huge increase in unemployment among women. And it's a lot to do actually with the kind of businesses that they're in, such as, say, hospitality. But also what we've seen is much more caring has been imposed on women. And I'm talking about things like childcare that women traditionally have done, but now with COVID keeping many children off school, They've been homeschooled and that's been quite stressful for women leading businesses and working in the corporate world to deal with that. And also care for the elderly, which has become quite intense during COVID because of illness. And I think it's one of these things where we know that there's an equal share between men and women in this area, but it's really been brought to light during the pandemic. And what about the level of financial exclusion uh, towards women? Would you say that it has gotten better or worse throughout the pandemic? That's an interesting question. I mean, it, it's very uneven around the world. If we look at your country, I'm not sure that it's got worse during the pandemic. It's just generally bad in many countries around the world. And I think that these countries are missing out because basically due to changes in law on things like inheritance and what happens during marriages, women are becoming more wealthy on a global basis. And actually, they're heading towards a position where in a few years' time, they'll own about 50% of the world's wealth. And yet, they're not treated the same by financial providers. And these providers are just going to miss out on a big wave of the she economy particularly in areas such as investment, which will be very important in the future. And the latest studies are showing that 
women investors are twice as likely to ask about the sustainability of the things they're investing in and where the goods they come from, the things they're buying. So they're looking at the supply chains and what's happening there. And this is a very interesting phenomena and one I think we need to pay more attention to as we continue to try and combat climate change. Perhaps we should take a step back and just get into the traditional headwinds or constraints that have limited a lot more women being included in the formal and the financial economy. What would you say those challenges are, Anne? Well, first of all, I think it starts with a belief in women's businesses. I mean, women find it hard to get funding from VC investors. They find it hard to get bank loans to run their businesses. And yet there are amazing number of women that are SMEs running their own businesses around the world. And in Africa, places like Uganda, Botswana and Ghana actually have some of the highest women-led companies in the world in terms of percentage. And so from that point of view, I think that that's a big barrier that we really need to knock down. There's also barriers for the women themselves about level of education, financial education, the kind of things that they need to to run their businesses. And I think that we have to start encouraging girls from a very young age to actually pay attention to this, not just financial education, but other subjects such as STEM education. Because if they don't keep up these analytical kind of subjects, then they don't have the tools that they need to be successful entrepreneurs in a world that's very driven by tech. Having said that, by the way, our latest study in MIA has shown that women are actually leading the way with making their businesses more technological. About 81% of women-led businesses now have gone digital, whereas only 68% of male-led businesses. So perhaps despite the education, the women are catching up and overtaking, uh, which is a good sign to see. What are the key barriers and challenges for women in rural and developing economies specifically? Well, I think the key areas in rural economies are often related to the fact that many things are done by word of mouth and by communities. And so it's really educating the women and gaining their trust in terms of working together to help them with their businesses. We've done a few projects in rural economies. For example, in Kenya, we rolled out a wonderful program called Jazaduka. It was focused against small shopkeepers that run dukas. And many of the people that ran those businesses were women. And they couldn't get access to credit because they often don't have any assets they can offer the bank as collateral. So we got together with Unilever to actually help out over 20,000 shop owners in Kenya. And what we did was we digitized the supply chain from Unilever. So if the shopkeeper was selling something like soap powder, we had the information from the time that Unilever provided it to the soap powder being sold to the consumer. And we could show the banks that the business was viable and a good business for many of these shopkeepers. 
And through that, they were able to get credit in order to buy more soap powder and buy things before their shelves became empty. And through it, we got a big uplift in sales when we started rolling out that program. And the barriers that we overcame there were actually educating the shopkeepers in terms of what the digitization of supply chain meant, how they could work with their banks to get credit, and how they could really grow their businesses. And building that trust among the community of shopkeepers that we were doing something that paved the way to a much more successful and inclusive financial system for all of them. Because we've been talking about an inclusive digital economy that works for everyone everywhere for some time. But in your view, what does an inclusive digital economy look like when it's also working for women? Financial inclusion has to really start with digital inclusion. And to attain digital inclusion can be a much simpler step. We can do things with MasterCard technology, such as use your thumbprint or your voice or your facial recognition to identify who you are in order to get you digitally included. And once you are digitally included, there are many things that you can do with that. I mean, you could receive benefit payments from your own government, such as farming subsidies, and you could also sell your goods online because, you know, you're a recognized person. People know who they're dealing with. And as a result of being able to say who you are digitally, you may be able to also get access to things like vaccination certificates and and things like financial inclusion because your bank can start recognizing who you are through your digital footprint. So it really is reaching the the people that need the help to basically bring them up the curve of saying, this is who I am, I can prove who I am, and I can use my biometrics and other ways to do so. And that's one of the ways that we will reach people in rural communities. And most of the people that are actually excluded today, unfortunately, are women. Mm -hmm. And what then is MasterCard's approach in addressing gender inequality as a means to advance financial inclusion for women? Well, you know, in 2015, we said we want to bring the next half a billion people into the financial system. And we want to do that in five years. And I'm glad to say we actually achieved that by 2020. And we didn't stop there because as soon as we'd achieved that, we said, let's bring the next half a billion people into the financial system. And included in that, we're actually going after 50 million SMEs. Why is this important? Because in the Arab world, 96% of businesses are actually SMEs and they employ over half the workforce. And in a normal course of events, roughly about a third of these small businesses are run by women around the world. But at MasterCard, we said, let's not just go with the third and just continue life as it is. Let's try and create more of a level playing field. And so with this 50 million target for SMEs, we're actually going after half of those companies to be run by women. 
And so we're reaching out to bring 25 million women-led businesses into the financial system. And this is a great move because they're the ones who have trouble getting finance and they're the ones who are excluded. And I think later on in this podcast, you're going to hear from a fantastic woman from Lebanon, Sarah Badone, who's for 20 years has been in the fashion industry, producing some beautiful bags in Lebanon, but working with some women who really are underserved and need help, some of whom have actually come out of prison, for example. And she is the kind of person that we see as somebody who's building an inclusive economy. And that's why we're working with her. I think her story is incredibly compelling. And do you think other private partners, and in your view, have also changed their perception of financing women-led businesses and have realized the importance and the benefits that can accrue when you unlock the female economy further? I think that we've got some way to go. Recently, in another area that I work, an organization called Financial Alliance for Women, which is a global peer learning network that has many of big banks from around the world and banks from all over the world, What we found is that banks are still underserving women, and we thought that might change with the fintech world. We thought that the new banks that are fully digital, that are coming out in different countries, you know, such as Mexico and Germany and parts of Southeast Asia and so on, we thought that they would be more forward-thinking and be thinking of a 50-50 model for men and women. But actually, what we found was that they were replicating the old credit processes and they were missing out on the she economy. This seems absolutely crazy to me because, you know, why would anyone in the business world be trying to build a business that only addresses the needs of half the human race. That can't make sense. You know, why would you be recruiting from only half the human race? It seems bizarre. If we actually just arbitrarily ignored the men and women split and just, you know, dressed half the world in green colors and the other half in red colors and said, we're only going to focus on the greens and we're only going to recruit from the greens, regardless of who they are, we'd know that we were doing something that was just very strange. And that is actually what we're doing with men and women today. And that's why I think it's really important to change. And now that we're facing something in the future so big and so hard for the world to tackle, such as climate change, an area that we have to all work together to actually combat, that's where we have to use all the world's resources. Do you think that uh, there's also an onus on women-led businesses and to make themselves a lot more visible uh, to the financial sector? I think that women can often feel fearful of the financial sector or feel that it's just been too difficult for them to deal with it. But quite honestly, in today's world where so much is moving to be sold online, you can't buy goods online with cash. It's impossible. And so you really need to be able to use electronic products in in order to grow your business. The growth of businesses can happen, obviously, domestically, but even within a country to reach the kind of places you want to reach. You have to be thinking about 
How do I sell my products and services over the internet? How do I get funding to set up the websites to do that? How do I integrate payment products to be able to do that? So having a view of the financial world and how to tap into it is important for everyone in business, but even more important today. Last year, we saw a shift to digital, which was massive, bigger than we've seen in the last five years. And it's going to be sticky in the future. People who started buying online will continue to buy online. And we can see that trend everywhere in the world. Well, Anne, thank you so much for joining the podcast. We certainly hope that those building blocks are given a lot more attention as we chart our way forward, especially given the positive spin-offs that can be received by the economy and communities at large. Thank you, Fifi. It's been really great talking to you. And I hope everyone really enjoys Sarah's story. Thank you. My next guest is Sarah Beidun, founder and creative director of Lebanese fashion house and social enterprise, Sarah's Bag. Sarah set up her business in 2000, bringing together her love of fashion and design with the mission to empower underprivileged women. Welcome to the podcast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your career journey, tell us about yourself and what it was like growing up in Beirut. I, I was born in Beirut and I was raised during the Civil War. When I was almost 18 years old, the civil war ended and Beirut was being reconstructed. And so I finished the high school and then went, went into university. I studied sociology. I did a thesis on uh, prostitution. And during my research on this thesis, I started a program in the prison. And this is where Sarah's back started. And you've been going on for over 20 years. But give us the backstory of how many women you started with back then and how many you employ today. Uh, I started with actually five women in Baghdad prison. The first year, they became 40 women. And this is because I was working uh, with an association in the prison and we were providing the work in the prison. And our work is the only source of income they could have. So they got really, it was like a collective energy. Everybody wanted to work because it's a way to get in money. And it's a way they could use the money to pay their daily uh, purchases, or they could use their money to put aside for their lawyers or to send money to their kids. So there was really a sort of a frenzy about uh, working with us. After the second year of working in the prison, we started to realize that a lot of these ladies are so skilled and they're, they're finishing their sentences. So we started employing those who finished their sentences and we encouraged them to work and to employ other women in their villages. So besides us working in the prison, we started also to work with ex-prisoners heading teams in their villages. So this lady, instead of being in the village and being like an ex-prisoner and being like stigmatized by being a prisoner, she would actually go back to her village, train other women on the handwork we had trained her and become a link between Sarah's bag and her village. So instead of being an ex-prisoner, she would be actually an entrepreneur in her own village. And until this day, we have in many villages in Lebanon, women who work in clusters with us. And the program kept on going 
unfortunately, last year, because of COVID, we were unable to reach the prison anymore. They would not uh, let us in. But we still work with over 150 women around Lebanon in the villages. COVID-19 has disrupted a lot of businesses, but I imagine it wasn't the first challenge that you encountered on your journey. What are the main challenges you experienced and how did you overcome? Okay, there were a lot of challenges. Uh, first of all, there was the challenge of turning the social project into a brand and training these women and training them to become professionals. And when a person is in prison, they actually are in the lowest the most challenging part of their lives. When I work with them, we really have to coach them emotionally and uh, encourage them and so on. So uh, training these women on becoming actually professionals was very hard. The second challenge, I think, came a few years down the line when I decided that I wanted to see if the brand could become an international brand. And this is when I went to Paris, I started going to Paris to the Fashion Week and started showing in a professional exhibition. This was very hard for us because I had to also follow the international fashion calendar. It's been a rough journey. It's been very hard, but I can say it has shaped me. I learned everything I know from the job I do. I went on from a sociology student to becoming a managing a project and then to managing a brand and becoming a designer. And it's been very enriching, but at the same time, it was a very long and hard journey. The nice thing about it is that it had impacted so many people. So I love what I do is because I see the impact it has on the people I work with. Was there ever a moment uh, at some point in your career throughout the difficulty where you ever thought about giving up? And if so, what kept you going? Okay, I, I need to tell you that last August after the blast, uh, my atelier is uh, situated a kilometer and a half far away from the blast. So everything was shattered. Everything was destroyed. We barely survived it. Actually, the next few days when I came to the shop and saw the destruction, I felt that I couldn't go on. I couldn't continue. And I felt like I can't continue. But then I saw that the clients who sent messages via WhatsApp, people who called, there was so much encouragement from the whole community and everybody I worked with, even the ladies in the the villagers called and asked to come and help me reestablish the atelier and the work space. So this support was meant a lot to me. And then I realized that even if I wanted to start from scratch my life, I would do exactly what I do today. I would recreate Sarah's bag and I would work on this project no matter when and what. I will always do the, the same thing. I think many of your clients will be happy to know that you did keep going, uh, given the wonderful creations that you have brought to this world. But Sarah, we're here to talk about the female economy. A common challenge many female-led businesses experience is the lack of access to finance, either to start up or to scale up. Did you ever experience this challenge and how did you get through it? I really started from scratch and really started very small. So the first three years of Sarah's bag, I was in the garage of the basement of my parents' building. I started with a budget of $200. So every step I took while working at Sarah's bag, I took it very cautiously, knowing that I had so many people relying on me. So everything that I made was reinvested in the brand over and over. So this was not one of my main problems. However, I know it's a problem for a lot of people. 
And even while scaling up, I was also too cautious. So it took me nine years to actually exhibit the first time in Paris and to show internationally. And then it took me 13 years to have my own website and sell to the whole world. So I took things really slowly, but because I always felt that I had the responsibility of so many families on my shoulders. So just on that slow pace that you took to grow initially, how would you view your pace going forward, given that the COVID-19 pandemic has forced many businesses to quickly accelerate and to quickly accelerate their digital offering? First of all, I, I know I took a very slow pace, but it was taken intentionally because at a point I remember traveling from Beirut to Dubai and so on. And then I sat with myself and I said, you know what, I don't want to have like a global company. I just want a medium-sized company that I could be able to work in and be happy working there. And I would be able to keep the DNA of my company, to keep working with women and to empower them. And I wouldn't be able to do this if I wanted to become a global company. I remember taking the the conscious decision to stay a medium-sized company and thinking that, you know what, I want to have a life at the same time. I want to enjoy myself at the same time. The COVID came and actually it reinforced this and we took a slower pace, but all our sales went into the e-shop and this is when we really started to focus on our digital presence. Sarah, I want to go back to the purpose of your business. It was to have a social impact and improve your community. I think a lot of businesses now that want to do good for people struggle to strike the balance of doing good for people and making a profit. How did you do it? I really think that businesses with purposes are the future. I think the consumer of today is a conscious consumer that really wants to know where he's buying from and how are the things made and who's doing the product. So I think even the consumers are more demanding in terms of how things are made. And I, personally, I think we struck the right chord by actually creating bags that are aesthetically appealing. So if you go on sarasbag.com and you look at our selection, you wouldn't know that these are done by women in prison or by any underprivileged woman. You just would look at the bag and see that it's a nice bag. So I think that having an aesthetically strong brand helped us sell well. And then the story always backed up the bag. So the story was not our selling point. The story was just backing up a very nice product. And this, I think, is what made the difference. You mentioned the business environment in Lebanon now being very difficult. How are you getting through this uncertainty? How do I do it? I can only say that I do it because I have a very a good supportive team. And we're always trying to preempt what's going to happen by trying to worst case scenarios. It's been very hard, but I think the internet and the digital presence has really saved us because now we have the whole world uh, wanting to buy from us and we're producing for the whole world. We're not producing anymore for the only the Lebanese clients. It takes a lot of courage, but there's a saying that says a bird on a tree is not afraid for the branch to fall because he knows that he can use his wings and fly. I'm not afraid because I always think I can find solution. However, it's a very hard struggle and it's a daily struggle. It's very hard, but I know because I'm responsible for such a big number of families and they draw all their force from me, 
this is what what keeps me going because I know everybody's relying on me. I can't just stop. So I think if we make it a machine kind of bird, it has to fly, but also perhaps needs assistance in terms of navigation to look out for the turbulence and anything else that might distort that flight. What responsibility do you think larger companies have to play to assist in the flight of these smaller birds? Uh, actually, in, on a personal level, MasterCard played a very important role in, in what I was doing because just after the blast, I was really very depressed and I was like wondering if I would continue working. This is when the MasterCard team had stepped up and said that they wanted us to work on a collaboration that would employ everyone I work with. So we created a collection that employs all the teams of handwork that I work with. And it took us three months in creation and it took us so much time and it made everybody work again. So it was also like a comeback for, for me and the company. And I think big companies do play a role because small to medium enterprises employ a lot of people that there are enterprises with hearts. They're mainly guided by people who have passion. They make the whole community work. And I think it's a way for big enterprises to reach the average person around throughout these small companies. Sarah, last question. What are the top tips to aspiring female entrepreneurs who admire your success and want to also achieve it? Uh, first of all, it's very important to be inspired, to have a mentor, to look up to somebody, to, uh, to be guided by somebody. And it's very important to ask for help because sometimes we don't notice. It's just a small question that could take you a long uh, road and that could make things faster. I really believe in mentorship and I really believe in women helping other women. And I believe in asking for help also. Sarah, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining the episode and being such an inspiration to female entrepreneurs. You're listening to The Journey to One Billion. Up next, we discuss some of the region's most impactful government initiatives that are helping to accelerate financial inclusion and drive economic growth. We speak to Khalid Al-Gibali, MasterCard's Division President for the Middle East and North Africa and Aref Al-Ramli, Chief Executive Officer at Emirates Digital Wallet, the company behind Clip, a digital cash platform in the United Arab Emirates. To listen to more, you can find episodes on www.miacontentexchange.com or download or subscribe to the podcast through your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, why not leave us a review? I'm Fifi Peters. Thank you for joining the journey to one billion.